There are many professing Christians in our world, and I do emphasize just that idea of professing, professing Christians who question whether the church is needed in their lives or not. Some would even go so far as to say it's not needed in their lives. They basically have this sort of perspective. They, they say something like this, if not by words, at least by their lifestyle, I I love Jesus, but I just don't love the church. Well, that's not what Scripture says about the church. For example, in Ephesians chapter 5, the Bible says that Jesus loved the church and gave himself up for her. In Matthew chapter 16, there's that famous verse where he called it my church, and he proclaimed that he would build his church. So according to Scripture, the church comes from Christ, the church belongs to Him. So we can conclude this, that if we say we love Jesus, then we must love the church. Just think about what the focus of the New Testament is. You have the four writings of the gospel, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, who give us the accounts of Jesus' life and ministry. But as you move past that, you come to the Acts of the Apostles, the book of Acts as we know it, that not only gives us the birth of the church on the day of Pentecost, but then follows the early history of the church and the ongoing spread of local churches all across the land of that day. Then you move into the epistles, just a word that means letters. You have the letters written by the apostles that are addressed two local churches, in some cases addressed to the pastor of a local church, in one case a member of a local church. I say all that because of what we're doing here on Sunday mornings. Here we are. We are studying one of those letters, one of those epistles. It's the letter written by the Apostle Paul to the local church that had been developed in the city of Thessalonica. This is one of Paul's earliest letters. So this young church, this relatively new church, was one that Paul and Silas and Timothy had planted. They went to that city of Thessalonica to preach the gospel, and people came to Christ, and so they planted this church. They stayed for a short while, then teaching biblical doctrine to them. They had to leave the city because of persecution and opposition at some point. But then Paul wrote this letter back to them to correct the thinking of the members of the church on some issues. He wrote it to answer some questions they had. He wrote it to encourage them. We are now in the last chapter of this letter to this local church, chapter 5. Now, in earlier sections, you'll remember that we discovered Paul's answer to their questions about the future. They had questions related to the rapture, that time in the future when the church will be removed from the earth and meet Jesus in the air and forever be in his presence. He answered questions, cleared up some things about that for them, and as well, he answered some questions they had about the day of the Lord. That's a future event, that time of future judgment, God pouring out his wrath on the earth that leads up to the Lord's second coming, His actual return to earth. But we're past all of that, moving into chapter 5, and actually we come now to the the final concluding section of the letter. 
And here we find the apostle giving some practical instructions on how believers are to live in light of the future return of the Lord. Now today we're just going to be looking at verses 12 and 13 of chapter 5. These two verses address how the members of the church should view the leadership of the church and as well how they should think about one another and the issue of unity in the church. To put it differently, these verses are prompting us to examine both shepherds and the sheep. found this great quote from Pastor MacArthur. It is crucial that the relationship between a pastor and his flock be healthy. If the shepherds and the sheep do not fulfill their proper spiritual responsibilities to each other, the church cannot be what God intends it to be. Well, in verse 12, here are the opening words to this whole practical section. He writes, but we request of you, brethren. That little particle, but, or your translation may say now, it indicates a transition. Paul is moving on to a new subject, and in this new section, he's no longer pointing the readers to the future. He's reminding them of some duties now. He's giving some practical guidelines they need to fulfill now in the present world. And what prompted him to give these guidelines and these directives were some deficiencies in the church that he had become aware of. Now, of course, this advice and encouragement that we find here is of such a general character and inspired by the Spirit anyway, that it also applies to us here at Twin City. But back to that verse, what, what's interesting is that instead of Paul giving us a, a, a clear-cut term of authority, you know, saying something like, but I command you now, brethren, he says it this way, he's making a request. That verb, request or ask, carries the nuance of a of a friend making an urgent appeal, no doubt, but it's a friend making that urgent appeal to another friend. And yet, there's still no doubt that what follows are exhortations. We are to take them seriously, exhortations to live in a certain way. It's just that he wanted the readers in that church to know that these exhortations were coming from a a friend who cared deeply about them. Even that's captured in that affectionate term of address he used there, brethren, which means brothers and sisters. So that's how he begins this section. With that in mind, let's examine the very first area that Paul focuses on in his concluding practical section. He's going to address in these two verses two relationships that church members need to be concerned about. Two relationships, and the first one is, number one, their relationship to chosen leaders. Now, more specifically, when we say the leaders, we are talking about the ones Paul has in mind when he uses that little word, those. Appreciate those. Those are the leaders. Now, no official terminology is used here to further identify them, but nevertheless, we know that he means the elders, the elders of the Thessalonian church. And that little pronoun, those, is plural. 
And that fits with the consistent New New Testament teaching that it is a plurality of elders that are to lead a local church. For example, we know that Paul sought to plant elders everywhere he went. We find an example of that, Acts 14, verse 23, not just appointing an elder, but a group of elders. He said they had appointed elders for them in every church they traveled to. Elders that are chosen from amongst the members of a particular local church based upon their willingness to serve, based upon their character, based upon their abilities. So this church in Thessalonica It was new, it was young, but despite its newness, it had a group of elders. Now, we can't say for sure how that term of elders in Thessalonica even formed. I mean, Paul and the others weren't there that long. Yet, we'd have to say it was possible that Paul quickly appointed some elders before he had to leave due to the opposition there. It's possible. It's not impossible, we could say. It was also possible that Timothy, you know, he went back and made a visit to Thessalonica. It's possible that Timothy formed that leadership team when he went back for that visit. And it's just as possible that the congregation itself had taken upon it themselves to choose some leaders. But regardless how that elder team was formed, this young church had not remained without some needed organization and some needed leadership. And the apostle Paul knew that there were some deficiencies in how the people were thinking about those leaders. So he makes a double request that really, in essence, is a a double exhortation regarding how they related to their leaders. First of all, he says they should, number one, recognize their role. Recognize their role. Verse 12 says, I'm requesting that you appreciate them. The leadership. Now, that's the way the New American Standard translates this verb. Other translations say something like this, that you know them. One translation says that you recognize them. And those are all good translations because the verb that Paul uses does normally have the meaning to know or to recognize. There are some other examples In Scripture, where that verb is used, for example, John chapter 4, verse 22, Jesus is talking to the Samaritan woman at the well. What a great scene that was. And he tells her, you are worshiping what you do not know. It's the same verb in our text. You worship what you don't recognize. We worship what we do recognize, what we do know. Philippians 4, where Paul is discussing the issue of the need to be content in every circumstance and how he had learned to be content in every circumstance, he says in verse 12, I know, I recognize, I appreciate how to get along with humble means. I also know how to live in times of prosperity. He could be content in either one. So the point here in our text is that the right attitude by church members toward leadership starts here with genuinely recognizing the men chosen as being the legitimate leaders in the church. This knowledge is more than just being able to recall their names. It's more than just a a general awareness of who they are, some facts about them and their families and their personal lives. He's talking about here a close personal acquaintance that results in being able to understand and know the leader's true character, 
and most significant, the role that they fulfill in the congregation. Because understanding all of that, being acquainted with all that, will result in coming to understand their value, their worth in the church family. Now, this is interesting that Paul says this is so important. Because elders are rightly urged commonly to know their members. We need to know you and know more than just your names. And here is the reverse. The members are being called upon to know the leaders. I will say this, some of the tension, much of the tension possibly, that at times develops between pastors, elders, and members would be done away with if the members would learn to know and appreciate the duties and the ministries of their chosen spiritual leaders. Because this is so important, the apostle now goes on to summarize with three verbal phrases here, three different areas of the elder's function in the church that you need to know and recognize. And there's just one article, by the way, that connects them all, so we know he's not talking about three different groups of leaders. No, it's all the same group, but three distinct functions. So here's one aspect of each elder's role that should be recognized, their diligent work. Their diligent work. Verse 12 says, know them who diligently labor. And that word labor is the one that means engaging in what can be very difficult to do, engaging what can be exhausting to do. And that's true of the work of of elders. It can be strenuous. It can result in weariness. So what legitimizes leadership is not the man's status or his social rank. It is the labor that he undertakes in the congregation. That's what legitimizes his leadership. That's why over and over again in the New Testament, it is this word that designates ministry labor. 1 Corinthians 3 verse 8, Paul is writing to the Corinthians, and Paul had been there, others had been there, and, and so he says it doesn't matter who's been here, whether they plant or the water. You know, that's metaphorically talking about ministry. He who plants and he who waters are one. They have the same goal, but each will receive his own reward according to his own exhausting, wearying labor. Colossians 1.29, Paul summarizes his own ministry, and he calls it labor for this purpose. I labor. He does it according to the power he gets from the Lord, but it's labor. 1 Timothy 5.17 The elders who rule well are to be considered worthy of double honor. Some are paid, in other words, especially those who labor, same term, work hard at preaching and teaching. The point is, this is what elders do. They they put forth a lot of effort to work hard to care for the sheep. And the writer of Hebrews calls that caring for the sheep, keeping watch over their souls. I mean, that's a weighty responsibility. This is what keeps an elder up at 2 o'clock in the morning for prayer. Keeping watch over the souls of the sheep in the church. So that keeping watch and that working hard includes certainly proclaiming the gospel to the lost. It includes explaining the truth and helping people apply the truth. Sometimes it includes warning the sheep, counseling them from Scripture, giving 
Spiritual guidance to the sheep, giving direction to the sheep, encouraging the sheep. We have to work hard. It's exhausting at times to work hard toward maintaining unity in the body. This labor includes trying to relate to people on an individual basis in the church and helping the sheep face the problems that come along in life, life's difficult problems, and and helping them find biblical solutions to the issues. Sometimes it's the labor necessary to work about bringing change within the church that's needed. My point is, all of this happens by diligent effort, hard work, while we rely on the Holy Spirit. The bottom line is, true leaders are willing to do this True leaders are willing to work to exhaustion for spiritual objectives. Certainly, the reality is the very thing, very few things that we do here as ministers are physically difficult. They're not necessarily physically tiring. That's more the stuff I'd do at home for my wife. That's, that's different stuff. But here, it's what's spiritually challenging and There are spiritual demands, there are emotional demands involved in this hard labor that can sap a man's strength, regardless of how strong he is. John Stott wrote this, whether it's study and the preparation of sermons or visiting the sick and counseling the disturbed or instructing people for baptism and marriage or being diligent in intercession, these things demand that we toil Striving with all the energy which Christ mightily inspires within us. This is how you're to properly evaluate ministers, elders. Not according to the numerical size of the church. That's not it. Though that's common to do today. It starts here. Recognizing their role and the diligent work that's required. Notice that Paul goes on further to just clarify this work and the sphere of the work. He says it's the work that they do, the labor they do among you. That confirms that we're talking about labor in the interest of the church family, the congregation. It doesn't mean that we can't be burdened about and interact on matters about the church at large elsewhere in the United States and the world and so forth. That might be warranted. It doesn't mean that we can't know anything else besides what's found in Scripture. But it does clarify something. The elder's sphere of work, the elder's sphere of concern, the elder's sphere of influence is not the business sphere. It's not the political sphere. True shepherds have their occupation with the sheep working hard about their spiritual lives. Recognize their role the diligent work that's required. Also, their loving rule. Their loving rule. Verse 12 goes on to say, and they have charge over you. That verb, or you may have a translation, just says, and they're, they're over you, literally means to stand before you, to stand at the front, first in line kind of thing. It's the idea of being at the head. But it therefore means concepts like this in English, to, to direct, to govern, to preside over. To rule. In 1 Timothy chapter 3, in the qualifications of an an elder, 
it says in verse 4, he must be one who manages, and that's the same term in our text, the one who rules over, manages, has charge over his household, keeps his children under control. He works hard at that. Deacons, same thing. Deacons must be good rulers over at home, managers, same term. I read 1 Timothy 5 a moment ago about the double honor and pay and working hard at preaching, but the first part of that was the elders who rule well, same term, are to be considered worthy of double honor. So it is a a verb that talks about ruling, but it, it includes some context like this, protecting the flock. It includes the, the nuance of being concerned about the ones they rule over. That concept's very important here, this concern for protecting the concern for the people because this is how the elder rules over and governs the sheep. He's one who genuinely cares for them. He's seeking to protect them from unbiblical thinking and unbiblical choices. And there's another phrase in our verse that even clarifies the nature and the scope of this ruling. It says it's in the Lord. He rules over you in the Lord. That's important because that confirms that our authority doesn't come because we, we have personal ambition for it. That's not it. No, it has to do with helping people follow the Lord. It's authority we have because we've been appointed by the Lord. That's why Paul would use this phrase periodically in his writings, 1 Thessalonians 4. We request, request and exhort you in the Lord Jesus. We command and exhort, 2 Thessalonians 3, in the Lord Jesus Christ. Here's another way to say it. True shepherds are not self-appointed. Their authority doesn't arrive from some other fallible human being. It comes from Christ. And so it's our duty to lead the sheep for His sake, not our own. It's not because we want power. It's not because we like prestige or we're trying to get wealth or we're trying to bring about advancement in our careers in some way. That's not it. It's authority. It's ruling over in the Lord only. You know, Jesus even painted a picture of the kind of humility that's necessary to lead the right way. When he said this in Matthew 20 and 26, whoever wishes to become great among you shall be your servant. There's the mindset. And whoever wishes to be first, the leader, the governor, will be your slave. It's that attitude. Peter made it very clear, writing directly to elders in 1 Peter chapter 5, shepherd the flock of God among you. Exercising oversight, there's the ruling over, said a different way, but not under compulsion, voluntarily, according to the will of God, not for sordid gain, do it with eagerness, but not lording it over those allotted to your charge, but proving to be examples to the flock. Elders are not to, we don't look to Rambo as our model, okay? Or for your older people, John Wayne. No, we, we look to the things that Christ said about humility and about serving and about being an example to the flock, Peter says, and so forth, and not lording over. Elders aren't supposed to just give commands and say, jump, and you just say, how high? 
but we do rule over. We do have to make judgments, and church members will not always agree with judgments that are made. But at the very least, you should be able to recognize that the elders are doing their best to act in accordance with Scripture, and they're doing the best, their best to do it for the Lord. Therefore, since elders rule on behalf of the Lord and by appointment from the Lord, when the members respectfully submit to the ruling over, they submit to the elders, then your submission is also an offering unto the Lord. And there's a third function that delineates the leader's work here you should recognize. It's their biblical guidance. It says in verse 12, and they give you instruction. Now that term, that verb, is translated more commonly in the New Testament, admonishing. They give you admonishment. They admonish you. And that is a better translation here. Some translations do. It's better. The term in the Greek literally means to put into the mind. So it includes, admonishing someone includes teaching them. We're putting into their mind what Scripture says. It also includes correcting them. It even includes giving warnings, all of which are designed to bring about change, a change of behavior and conduct and thinking in the person. That's admonishment. So to admonish someone does mean you're calling attention to their fault in some way. You're reminding someone of what they've forgotten or you're warning them of what they're in danger of forgetting. It may even involve a rebuke for wrongdoing. A warning against wrongdoing, as well as instruction, this is what is right. So yes, admonishment, you see, is aimed at the conscience. It's aimed at the will of the person. To stir the person up, him or her, to greater watchfulness and obedience in their life. That's why all of these nuances, warning, teaching, rebuking, admonishing, all of that, correcting... That's why this Greek term, both the verb and really the noun form in this case, actually is a good synonym for counseling. We use this Greek term as a synonym for what counseling is. Now, sadly, many people don't want admonishment. Many people don't want personal correction. Nevertheless, admonishment is necessary for the congregation. And elders, this is part of their job. Part of their role that you need to recognize. Just a few other texts in which this term appears. Acts 20, 31, Paul summarizes his ministry with the Ephesians. He says, for night and day when I was with you for three years, I did not cease to admonish you. Same word. This is what I did. It wasn't harsh. It was out of love. He says he does it with tears. 1 Corinthians 4, verse 14, Paul had to write a a strong letter to the Corinthians and correct them on some things. But then he says, look, I don't write these things to shame you, which means manipulate you in some way through shame and feelings. I'm writing to admonish you as my beloved children. This is how I see you. In fact, it is a parenting term. In the famous verse in Ephesians verse, chapter 6, verse 4, where it says fathers are not to exasperate their children. Parents don't exasperate your children or provoke them to anger. It says, bring them up in the discipline and instruction, same term, admonishment of the Lord. There's discipline, which means training. 
and all the things necessary to train, and teaching and instruction, which is going to include correction and rebuke at times. And Paul, again, summarizes his own ministry that way. Colossians 1.28, we proclaim Christ, admonishing every man. Of course, to properly admonish, leaders then must be knowledgeable of Scripture because Scripture is the basis for the admonishment. We are exhorting believers to apply the truth. So add all this up. In the church... Those who are distinguished by their labors for the church, the hard work, diligent diligent work. Those who are distinguished by their loving rule, providing leadership and provision. Those who are seeking to give biblical guidance and admonishment in order to bring moral influence on others. They are the ones who should be recognized as the true leaders in the church. Recognize their role, but second, respect their role. Respect their role. Verse 13 goes on to say, I'm requesting, exhorting you, that you esteem them. This this is an interesting verb, esteem. You could translate regard, that you regard them a certain way. It is a verb that says, give careful consideration to something. Give deliberate consideration to something or someone. In this case, it's the elders. There's thinking involved in this term. In fact, it's translated that way many times. Same term, 2 Corinthians 9, verse 5. So I thought, I I regarded it, I considered it necessary. Philippians 2, 25, I thought it necessary to send you Epaphroditus. Philippians 3, 8, I count, I've considered, I've concluded and esteemed all things to be lost in view of the surpassing value of knowing Christ. You can either translate it, consider, in 2 Peter 1, 13. I consider it right to do this, to stir you up, to remind you of things. So this idea of thinking and considering is included in what this verse is saying in verse 13, that you consider something here, that you think about something here, but it's a considering that's to result in respecting or esteeming the elders. And the next part of the verse helps confirm that that's the attitude that Paul has in mind here. He says, very highly in love. Consider them, regard them very highly. That means beyond all measure, with the highest regard. So obviously it's the attitude of respect. Those Thessalonian readers should not only recognize the leaders among them, but respect them greatly. And it says this esteem and this respect is to be expressed in love. This great regard for leaders is not just mere submitting to someone of a higher rank. That's not it. Okay, I'll do it because he's higher than me. No, it's to be part of a relationship characterized by your love for them. And it's present tense, by the way. We point that out sometimes because a command like that in present tense means to do it continually, a lifestyle. Why? Why should you carry this attitude of respect toward the leaders of the church? Well, he answers that in verse 13, because of their work. That's the reason. I mean, there is a certain dignity that goes just with the role of leadership of being an elder in the church. 1 Timothy 3, those qualifications, character qualifications, it starts this way. 
If a man aspires to this office, in other words, he has a drive toward this, he has a desire for it, the officer of overseer, in other words, for elder, it's a fine work that he desires to do. It's a, it's a work of dignity. So again, the esteem and the respect elders are to receive, it's not due to their social status, it's not due to their financial status. It's not due to their level of education or their family name or their personality or their title. It's just due to the dignity of the work they engage in, the role they fulfill for the benefit, spiritual benefit of the congregation. Respect for their role in the church, which in essence is going to come back to being their ministry of the word to you, to your soul. So on one hand, we as elders, we're members of this church like you. We are all equal in this church family. And yet, Scripture says the elders must be given respect because God's called them to this role and set them apart for this very important labor of leading His church So the sheep are to lovingly acknowledge the labors of the shepherds and greatly respect them. And I'll add something else, and that includes willingly and lovingly overlooking their non-sinful human frailties. I said earlier, you need to know your elders. You may be thinking, there's a danger in that, knowing you guys. It's easier to respect you if I don't know you so well. I've been here 17 and a half years, and so a handful of people are still here from those beginning days, and they've had 17 and a half years of beginning to understand my human frailties and weaknesses. It's true of all the elders. So you're going to have to overlook those things and over to greatly respect them This includes speaking well of your elders. It includes encouraging your elders and giving your best for them. All of that's included. This is the first relationship that church members need to be concerned about, but it wasn't the only relationship Paul had on his mind here to write them about. Second, their relationship to fellow believers. He says almost abruptly, verse 13, live in peace. The church family is to be known for that. The church family is to be known for an absence of discord and strife and instead the maintenance of harmony. And this call to peace is even rooted in what Jesus taught in Matthew chapter 9, Mark chapter 9, verse 50. He says, be at peace with one another. And that call to peace then continues in the epistles to the local churches. Romans 12, verse 18, if possible, which means not always possible, so far as it depends on you, it takes two people to have peace, both sides, but you, can, you can't control the other side. You can only control you. So as far as it depends on you, seek to be at peace with all people in the church and out of the church. Romans 14, so important. Romans 14 addresses many issues that can end up causing disunity and a lack of peace in the church. What we call the gray areas, those things the Bible does not clearly say, thou shalt or thou shalt not. And there's hundreds of them. People develop different opinions and preferences and convictions and things. Usually about external things. 
And Paul had to correct the Romans about that, and here's part of his teaching to them, verse 17. He just reminds them the kingdom of God is not about those things. It's not about what you eat or don't eat. It's not about what you drink or don't drink. It's not about any of those things. What it's about is righteousness and peace and joy in the Holy Spirit. So he says in verse 19, so pursue the things that make for peace then. And the building up of one another, not the things that are going to continually cause discord. Ephesians 4 verse 3, be diligent to preserve the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace. The unknown writer of Hebrews 12, 14, pursue peace with all men. In fact, later on in Galatians 5, you know, we studied Galatians for a couple of Sundays, but uh, in Galatians 5, you'll remember the fruit of the Spirit is listed, and so peace is one aspect of the fruit of the Spirit. Peace is evidence that the Spirit is working in someone's life. So evidently, Paul was aware of some discord in the Thessalonian church. Overall, we've seen in Thessalonians that it was a model church in many ways. Overall, the relationships between the members of this church were good, but evidently there was some level of tension to some degree, and that tension prompted this apostolic plea for peace. And notice that he says peace with one another. That little phrase makes this duty equally binding on every member of the church. Every member of the church must have a share in maintaining the peace that's necessary. My own Greek professor from seminary, Master Seminary, Dr. Robert Thomas, wrote this, anarchy is always wrong. We need to keep that in mind, by the way. Anarchy is always wrong, particularly among Christians. Just one more thing about all that. I said that live in peace suddenly is written abruptly. There's no connecting particle that grammatically ties this to what he's been saying about recognizing the role and respecting the role of the elders. But there is a connection, I believe, contextually. Working hard to maintain peace in the church family is an important way to show respect for and support for the elders. I can just tell you, few things, there are few things that distract and discourage an elder more than when church members are not getting along, than when church members level needless complaints against fellow believers or disturb the church with strife over some issue. It's important because the bottom line is no church can grow spiritually without its members being at peace amongst themselves. So, based on all this, I started thinking, then we get from this passage what ought to be normal for us. And I came up with a list of five norms that I concluded are normal, calling them norms, and I'm sure there are more, but based on what we've just studied, these are normal for Christians. Here's norm number one. Church membership is the norm. 
I mean, just think about it. If the Lord has placed leaders, shepherds over the sheep, and he's called those leaders, and there certainly is a, an implied message to the elders here, keep in mind what your duties are and fulfill them. We, we do see that. If the Lord has placed leaders over the church and he's called them to the triple function of laboring hard and ruling with love and, and admonishing and giving biblical guidance, then it only makes sense. It only follows that the Lord's people then should be organized in local churches under this kind of spiritual leadership. Let me put it this way. There's nothing in Scripture that supports the idea of believers being free agents, you know, like in the sports world. We're not, we're not called to be free agents with respect to our faith and our following of Christ, but we're to be like sheep under the careful oversight of the appointed shepherds appointed by Christ. And so, therefore, we should jump into the church and join the church and be involved in the church and treasure the church and pray for the church and bind together with other, others in the church for worship and work, all for the glory of the Lord and the spread of the gospel in this world. Church membership is the norm. It's abnormal not to be plugged in and involved. Number two, submission to elders then is the norm. That's the norm. The sheep must be willing to... Think of it this way, broaden submission for a moment. The sheep needs, need to be willing to wholeheartedly open up their lives to the ministry of the elders. To come to them for counsel when important and difficult decisions need to be made. That's part of our, our role. We get calls sometimes from people from other churches wanting counseling. And one of the first questions we ask, well, have you gone to your pastor? No, nah, I really don't want to do that. Yeah, but that's why they're there. <laughs> Open your life up to the elders. Seek biblical advice and prayer for any needed change in your life. Definitely open up your hearts and be teachable. Open up your minds to the faithful preaching and teaching of God's Word that keeps going on. The point is, Christians ought to make every effort to benefit from their elders and submit to them. Now, sometimes that is going to mean cheerfully accepting decisions that you don't fully understand, all the while trusting the Lord. Now, sadly, there are those situations when church elders act unbiblically, even abusively, in which case... That concern needs to go to the other elders, and sometimes it will even be necessary for Christians to separate from a church because of unbiblical priorities and untrustworthy leadership and abusive leadership. I'm just talking about the norm. It's the norm for Christ's people to respond submissively to the authority placed over them in the church that they're involved in. Third norm, one leads to the other, right? Well, then patience is going to be necessary. <laughs> it's going to take a lot of patience with the leadership. That's the norm. Again, the reality is that the longer you know pastors and elders, the more you're going to become aware of their defects and their failings. So over time, 
it is inevitable that an elder is going to let virtually everybody down in some way. The anniversary of a death of a loved one is going to be forgotten. We're going to say wrong, though probably well-meant words in some situation. Providentially, an elder is going to be unavailable at a time when he's really needed. So the norm to make it all work is patience with the leadership, along with an attitude of something else, an attitude of forgiveness. Fourth, balance is the norm. You see, everything that Paul has taught about church leadership and membership has to be applied with careful balance. Here's an example of that. Leaders are to oversee and rule, and yet they're not to dominate and lord over or stifle the members. It's careful balance. Church members are to respect and esteem the elders. certainly doesn't mean you worship your pastors. Christians are to obey and follow their leaders, and yet... The leaders have a responsibility to teach and make decisions in keeping with Scripture. So you are to obey and follow their leader, your leaders as long as they're doing that. It's a need for balance. And the difficulty of achieving that need ought to persuade every one of us to bathe every member and every elder in this church in prayer. Prayer for ourselves and prayer for the church itself. And lastly, I'll pick one more related to peace. There's a lot of practical things I could say about pursuing peace. I just picked one. Guarding our speech is the norm. If we want peace. If we want to pursue and maintain peace. Because I'm convinced that it is speech and the things we say that can disrupt the peace and cause strife more than any other one thing. So let me just suggest one question each of us ought to ask ourselves in some moment where you might want to say something about one of the elders or what you believe or disagree with or whatever, just at least ask this question, is what I'm saying at this moment promoting peace? It's a good test. There are others. In fact, there's a sixth one. I could say gratitude then is the norm. (laughs) Grateful that all of our failures in this regard and every other regard are covered in the death of Christ on the cross. How grateful we are for that. When Christ died on the cross, he took upon himself every failure we have as the sheep or our shepherd in our lives and paid the debt for it so that we can be free to continue striving to do those things without fear. We're so grateful for his forgiveness, and we get to remember that now and celebrate that now at the Lord's table. Let's pray. Father, thank you for this practical section of how we are to think about one another and relate to one another, and so much in Scripture addresses those kind of things, but these two verses certainly are powerful. Thank you for the potent reminders, who we are as elders and what we're to do what you expect of us and what you expect of the sheep. Give us your strength to fulfill these things. Thank you, Lord, for your forgiveness because we confess in moments of time we don't live these things out, we forget them. Thank you for your grace and mercy toward us. I do pray for anyone here who can't say, I am a follower of Christ, 
I have come to that place where I have said, I'm, I'm following Christ. I need his forgiveness. I, I want to submit myself to him and follow him as my Savior, my Lord, the rest of my life, no matter what. No going back, no turning back. I'm going to follow him. Lord, I pray you would open their hearts to know the joy of being forgiven of their sin and becoming a sheep of the great shepherd. In our Savior's name, amen.